Hey, welcome to a bonus episode of Pop Culture Leftovers. Super excited to bring you this episode. Uh, we got to speak with Joe Alves, the production designer on Jaws. And uh, yeah, what I mean by we is I got Dan West from Brute Force and Ignorance, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. I got uh, Scott Schutte from Tales from the Yard from the uh, Leftover Army podcast feed. And I've got Ryan Drost from Star Joes. We're all talking to Joe Alves. This is the guy that designed the three mechanical sharks for Jaws. Got some amazing stories here. Worked with Steven Spielberg. Actually worked with even more people than Steven Spielberg throughout his career. It's crazy. Uh, I'll give you a tease. He worked for someone that was has the same last name as a Will Smith movie. There you go. There's your clue. But listen to the episode to find out. It's pretty cool. And, you know, you guys can get involved in this too because I've got – Five of these to give away. And what I'm talking about is Jaws 45th Anniversary Limited Edition 4K Blu-ray set. This is the first time Jaws has ever been in 4K. And uh, this is just – this is Steven Spielberg's – this is the movie that started the summer blockbuster. This is the movie that I remember watching when I was a kid that scared the crap out of me. I didn't even want to go in the tub. Okay, I mean, this movie scared me to death. It includes over three hours of bonus content. Uh, It's uh, the winner of three Academy Awards, including Best Original Score from John Williams. Um, The limited edition combo pack with lenticular packaging includes a 4K Ultra HD. Also comes with Blu-ray and a digital code of the film, along with a 44-page booklet with introductions, rare photos, storyboards, and more from the archive. Uh, Bonus content includes the making of Jaws, deleted scenes, outtakes from the set, and much more. If you're a huge Jaws fan... This is this is for you. And you know what? If you've already got Jaws, it doesn't matter. This is the first time it's in 4K. Let's get it in 4K. I mean, it's going to look gorgeous. So, um, But you can win this. You can win this, and I'm going to tell you how. Check this out. Five people are going to be able to win this. Uh, send me, send me, brian at popcultureleftovers.com. Send me, and it can be up to 30 seconds. No more, no more, no more. 30 seconds, I want you to send me a clip of you reenacting an audio, an audio clip, not video, audio clip of you reenacting your favorite scene from Jaws. Send it to Brian at popcultureleftovers.com. Send it however you want to send it. And, uh, if, if it's awesome, then I'll play it on the show in a future episode. And then I'll reach out to you, get your address, and we'll send it to you. Sorry, we can only do this within the United States. If you're outside of the United States, we can't ship you if you're a winner, but you can still Send in your audio clip if you want to. All right. Uh, without further ado, here is our interview with the great Joe Alves. Bonus episode. There's already like 7 million podcasts talking about pop culture and all that. Makes us happy like shooting at a womp rat. But it's all been done before. We don't want to be a copycat. We're the leftovers picking up the scraps. Dropped by the cool kids. It, it, it's a trap. We've been dying to talk to you. This is a movie that I grew up with. I was born in 78, so this movie was out when I was a child and I remember watching it and just being terrified to even go into the pool 
after seeing Jaws, <laughs> you've terrified millions of 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 children. Uh, I get uh, in the seventies, eighties, and and even on up. Um, and you were the production designer on Jaws, and we're celebrating the forty fifth anniversary of just a, a historic film made by Steven Spielberg and just an amazing team of people that put this movie together. And we're thrilled to be talking to you. And so I'm sure we're going to have a ton of questions. But uh, is there anything that you'd like to say? Maybe a little bit of an introduction yourself. Well, nothing. Let me just say this, because 45 years, uh, and I was involved with three Jaws movies, <clears throat> and then it sort of went away for a long time. And then uh, people like Greg Nicotero, who's 55, and uh, Kevin Smith, and various directors that are in their, like, 50, early 50s, and... Uh, the, the writer on on my book, I'll tell you about that, Dennis Prince, he's in mid-50s. So it, that inspired those guys to do stuff in, in the movie business. So it sort of came alive again, probably the beginning of this century when they had the 30th anniversary and Martha's Vineyard of Jaws. And people said, God, you have all these storyboards. Don't you make copies and sell them and stuff? So then I got more active at that time. And basically, it hasn't gone away. And then the last couple of years, I've been working with a, a writer, Dennis Prince, and we wrote a book that's on Amazon now called Joe Alves Designing Jaws. And that came about because uh, the Catalina Island Museum had a, uh, a display of Jaws stuff, which was my drawings and Greg Nicotero's company made the three characters lifelike and we had the cage. So a- anyway, uh, before we started in the beginning, that's what's happened in the last couple of years. It's been surprisingly very intense uh, with information. And, uh, and then now with the 45th anniversary, I'm doing quite a few podcasts to to promote the new uh, DVD. Oh, anyway, so that's where it is now. So you can start wherever you want. I know, Dan. I know you have some fantastic questions. We'll start with Dan. Okay. Well, I mean, first of all, just to say it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I will say about your book that is coming out. I- I've seen the book, and it is just if you're a film fan, or you're a production design fan, or you're just a fan of the shark in general. Definitely pick it up because it is absolutely beautiful. The charcoal drawings in there from uh, the production design, fantastic. So please check that book out. It's it's awesome. Um, oh, thank but, you, Dan. That's you're, a nice promotion. <laughs> you're very, very welcome. Um, but yeah, I, there's, uh, there's something I've always wanted to know, which is a lot of people know that Stephen had a name for the shark. And I was wondering whether or not you had your own personal name for the shark or did you just call it the shark? Oh, yeah, I just, I just called it the shark. Uh, you know, the names and stuff like that, that came sort of later, um, you know, and people would. But Stephen came up with the thing, Bruce, because it was his uh, lawyer was named Bruce. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, know, uh, I, you know, I was just concerned about making the movie and uh, and, you know, working with effects and all that. And so anyway, go ahead with the questions that I'll go. Uh, first and foremost, what is your favorite scene from the film? Oh. Favorite scene. Well, you know, I got to say, 
uh, I, I liked the the, uh, the three guys in the cabin talking, comparing scars. I liked the drama of it. You know, uh, I saw the movie, hadn't seen it for a long time, and at that Catalina Island, they had uh, an audience and an uh, outside and a big screen at night, and I hadn't seen it for a long time, and I, I thought, oh, I, you know, I've seen it. And, and anyway, Julie, who was managing the museum, she introduced me to the crowd there, and she said, and then Joe's going to talk after the movie, and I thought, oh, I guess, so my wife said, no, you know, sit here, and it was with Dennis, the writer. So I watched it, Dan, and i got to tell you, I watched it for the first time without thinking about what I did or what might go wrong or if this looked good or if this looked bad. And I just enjoyed the movie, and I really enjoyed the third act. Uh, yes, it had a shark, and that shark was very important. But the relationship between, you know, uh, Hooper character and and, uh, and Quint, you know, two complete, they're ocean guys, but one is a rough, you know, fisherman and the other is an exeologist, gone to school, all that stuff. And, and then you have Chief Brody, who didn't want to be on the water at all. So I think that captured, to me, the whole highlight of the film. And then, of course, the sharks out there, and they're talking, and then you hear boom, boom, show me the way to go home, boom, boom, and then the shark is hitting the boat. And uh, I have a comment on that, too, because later there's a little, little insert where the shark is breaking the boat and you see the water coming in. And we shot that in my driveway. <laughs> later, awesome. Which I'll tell you about that. Or That came much later uh, where Stephen came to me and said, we need two more shots. And this is when the studio didn't even know. We did this way. We borrowed a camera. We stole the head. Anyway, uh, but uh, I'll let you ask more questions. Okay. The scene Blowing where my mind. Oh, the scene where you're talking about with uh, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. Um, I absolutely love that scene, and just they're so different. They're just such different characters, but that's the way that they bonded. And I, yes. I think it just made such a, such a great scene. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is the reactions from Robert Shaw, um, and, uh, uh Brody, the, the reactions from these actors seeing this shark, it, they feel real. And I think a lot of that has to do with how real the shark looked. It terrified me as a child. And I think, I, I don't know if you can pull those performances out of like the actors today where they're using CG. When mm -hmm. this is something that's physical, it's tangible, it's there, it's in front of you, and I think that did that add to some of the, like the the fear that they had while uh, portraying that in the film? I think what first of all, let me just say this. Uh, I'll go to the beginning later how I got involved before Stephen was involved based on the book, but uh, it was the mere size of the shark. Uh, and uh, the first shot where it sort of swims by the boat, and you really see it next to the boat, and you say, my God, this thing's almost as big as the boat. And when it comes and it lands on the deck, uh, or before the deck, it just comes up, and Shider says, you've got to get a, a bigger boat. But uh, 
I think uh, the idea that it's not CGI and the actors have to work against a real object as opposed to acting in front of a green screen, which is uh, pretty much what they do on everything today. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you don't build any big sets. Like another movie I did, Close Encounters, uh, we, we had Dreyfus and Melinda Dilla, you know, running up this hill. Uh, and and I, had to, I built this hill with seven stories high on rollers. And today it would be just green screen. So most of Jaws would be green screen and would be, uh, I would say, maybe they would do some motion shots, of course, but... Uh, it's very difficult. The ocean uh, is not predictable, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think uh, they were impressed. They were sort of blown away about the, the size of this thing. And uh, I, I'm sure it, it helped uh, in their performances. I have a, a question. This uh, tied into what we're talking about right now. Uh, this is Ryan. Um, yeah. You know, nowadays, pe- you know, there, people can just turn on like things like YouTube or streaming services, tons of documentaries, tons of research has been done about sharks and everything else to, mm-hmm. to be able to pull for references. But that wasn't the case for you back then. Um, what did you pull as far as your references when designing the shark? Like, was it was there books? Was there, you know, Jacques Cousteau documentaries? Like, what did you actually pull as your inspiration and your references? Okay. First of all, you know, uh, I got involved with with, with the with the movie because uh, I was a staff art director at Universal. Everything was staff in those days. There's seven basic studios, and you started off as a junior set designer, junior whatever. And I became an art director, and I was uh, I had done Sugarland Express with uh, David Brown and uh, Richard Zanuck and Steven Spielberg, and so I'm I'm. I'm a staff guy there, and I get a call from David Brown. Says his wife, Helen Gurley Brown, who was a editor of Cosmopolitan, had just read these galley sheets from a book, a new young writer, Peter Benchley, and uh, she thinks it might be a good movie. And David said, Joe, if I send you the galleys, could you just go through and do illustrations of the shark activity? And and Stephen wasn't uh, involved yet. The studio, I mean, there wasn't a charge number. They couldn't even pay me to do it. I was getting paid to do a television movie. And the head of the department said, that's fine. So so basically, uh, guys, the, the illustrations are not based on really sharp knowledge at this point. It could be some of them look like Moby Dick. But one, they said... Uh, after a big meeting, I showed all my stuff, and then Stephen came involved. And the head of the studio effects department said, uh, we can't make this. It'll take a year and a half. Uh, it's never been done. Because Stephen and I, we had discussed that if we do this, we want to do it with a big shark in the real ocean. And uh, we had seen some movies where, they, you know, they had big fish, uh, uh, Old Man of the Sea, I think it was, and they had this big marlin that was up against a, a, a backdrop, and it just looked terrible. And so in a naive way, we said, we want to do this with a full-size shark, 25 feet, bigger than most, most white sharks, or all white sharks. And in any case, when the studio said they could do it, then Marshall Green, the head of production, asked me if I can get the shark made. 
And, uh, I, you know, he said, take it off the lot and go do it someplace else. So I did, and then I found Bob Maddy and a crew. Now I had to make it look like a real shark. So I, there was an ecologist, Leonard Campagno. I contacted him after doing some research. Uh, going to the library, we had research departments. I got everything out. I found his name at the uh, Steinhardt uh, uh, Oceanographical uh, Studies at the Steinhardt uh, Lab in San Francisco. And uh, Leonard Campagna was uh, an ecologist, quite well-known in white sharks, carcarnum carcarize thing. And he came down, and I made a, uh, it, it was about four-foot shark. It's in the book. And he detailed it with me. And we went over, I've got a lot of research on white sharks and stuff. And he was telling me, uh, white sharks uh, are sort of a perfect balance shape at about 12 feet. After that, they start to get girthy. And, and Stephen and I didn't want a fat shark. So we decided that we'd take a 12-foot shark and double it, but keep it very, you know, sort of stream-looking. And, uh, and that's what we did. And we came up with like a 25-foot shark. Uh, and so, th- basically, that was it, uh, working with Leonard. And uh, then, uh, when we started uh, talking about the movement and stuff like that, Ron and Valerie Taylor, who did Blue Water, White Death, uh, a lot of sharks in that, and I looked at that, and we contacted them, and they told me how the shark should move, don't wiggle the tails too much, let it stream by, and then when it attacks, it attacks, you know, with great vigor. So that's sort of my, my shark study. Uh, as you're right, we, we didn't have, you know, to jump on a computer and get all that information. Right. We had to get, in, you know, books and people. So that's how that started. Very cool. How long did it take? Did it take a long time to get the, the skin of the shark down once it hit the water so that it looked like a real shark? Was that a difficult process, just... The it, just making it look like a real shark in the water with the skin, with the water hitting it. Yeah, the skin. You, you see, here, here's the thing. Once I got Bob Maddie, and uh, because I took it to Disney, and they said uh, it would take about a year, but they wouldn't take it to the ocean. Uh, I talked to Joe Lombardi, who did the Godfather movies, and he says it'd take about a year, year and a half, but he, you know, it's going to be difficult. But he was busy. But then I found Bob Maddie who had done the giant squid, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and he worked at Disney's and was sort of retired. And uh, he came up with the idea of how we're going to do it. And then he said, we've got to find people that do special things. So we needed someone who really knew the new, let's say, plastics, lacimers and stuff. And uh, we found Roy Arbogast. And he was in the studio making breakaway bottles. And Roy was really an expert on all the new fabrics. In other words, we needed flexible, uh, but wouldn't wrinkle, uh, it wouldn't rip. And then the actual surface of the skin, because we didn't want it to look like a balloon, where the water would just peel off like a balloon, I think they used a 40 silica sand in the paint. So it ended up like uh, light sandpaper so that the water didn't peel off. 
it just was absorbed, you know. And um, so that's how we got that effect. So it will look really quite realistic uh, with the, uh, the the materials and, and the painting it with the sand. That's really cool. <clears throat> Another question, guys. Hey, Joe, this is uh, Scott, and uh, it's, uh, sorry, <laughs> if we go down the wrong pipe, you know how that works. Um, I was seven uh, when this film came out, and my parents were yeah. bright enough not to let me see it in the theater. As a matter of fact, when they came home, they told me um, that I couldn't watch it on TV either, uh, which is okay. true. I think the first time I saw it was on VHS. Uh, that being said, you know, the... Uh, the thing that I appreciate the most um, about your film is just the ingenuity around the the film itself, right? So going out and actually filming on the ocean certainly probably presented a, a whole lot of unique challenges. And I, I wouldn't, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a, you know, one of the stories that perhaps you and your crew had around. Um, gee, we want to get this really great shot, but we're on the water, and you know, how do we solve for that? Versus, if you had, you know, shot it on a on a set. All right. Uh, first of all, okay, when Stephen and I decided we're going to do it out there, and, and let me just explain this. Uh, when the meeting I had uh, with uh, all the department heads was October third. And then uh, the head of the production at Universal said, you know, go out and get the shark made. By the time I got a team together, that was probably November. Uh, and they set up a shop in Sun, Sun Valley here in the valley. And uh, so construction, we have to, you know, make a model and all that stuff. Big 25 foot. All right. So that was uh, December, mid-December. Uh, the book came out. In February of 74, a couple months later, and the studio said, we're going to start shooting this movie in two months. And (laughs) we said, wait a minute, we needed a year, year and a half to make the shark. No, no, you know, the book's a big seller. We've got to get this, you know, the publicity of the book. They didn't give a damn. I mean, they're just suits, you know, they're they're executives. What's going to be good? Oh, the good thing is to get this thing up by uh, the next summer, you know. And uh, so... Bob and his crew, uh, we started with six guys, and then we added more. Uh, and they were working like crazy, and we had to make three sharks. One pulled 300 feet away, left to right, and one right to left, and that way because the backside we would have open so we could get to the electronics. Okay. Then he had one on a platform, a big platform, which he would sink, and it was on rails and a big arm that lifted up. So basically, that was so complicated, you know, just getting that done. And Stephen got them to push another month, so we started the 1st of May. And I had scouted, uh, just give you a brief history, I met with Peter Benchley in December, and I said, uh, where did you write this for? And he said, well, nothing specific. He's from the East Coast. He grew up in Nantucket, and he said the various, you know, towns on the coast, uh, Sag Harbor, Covington, whatever, and uh, and he said, you know, and, and go to Nantucket and meet my, see my parents are there, 
And then I asked him about this other island, Mafia's Vineyard. He says, I don't think there's anything there. He'd never been there. Anyway, long story short, I scouted all over that place, uh, and I ended up at Woods Hole, and I took a boat to Nantucket, and it, it was too, it, the water was so rough, I came back, and then the, uh, there was a boat to Martha's Vineyard, so let me try that. So I went to Martha's Vineyard. Now, not only was I looking for this wonderful little village that's going to be terrorized by a shark, I wanted a fishing village, too, where Quint would hang out. But I also needed a, a, a piece of ocean because of the platform shark. I needed 25 feet of depth with a, with a flat bottom, and I needed a very small tide. And in Southern California, the tides are like 12 feet. Well, I had this, uh, you know, oceanographical map study, and there was this little bay right near Edgartown that was 25 feet, and it's two-foot tide. So that and that sort of settled it, you know, uh, we're going to go there and make the movie. So uh, basically, now what was your question again? Because I've diversed a little bit. No, no, I love it. This is great. No, I, you know, what were some of the challenges you, you uh, faced, oh. you know, filming in open water versus, say, in a city? Oh, okay, that, that's it. Let me tell you the challenges. The challenge about ocean water, first of all, I scouted that uh, in December, and the beaches were covered with snow, and the ocean was perfectly clear. Now, uh, because of the shark not having all the time we needed, Stephen had to shoot everything, all the walk and talk stuff, without the shark. All right? And I want to clarify this, because I get so many critics that, oh, we didn't use the shark because it didn't work, and then we used the barrels because the shark was totally wrong. If you look at the back of the book, you see all the storyboards and all the shark shots, and we got every one of those, and we used the barrels. I painted them yellow because normally they're black, so that they would represent the shark. It was like a Hitchcock thing. If the barrel pops up, you know where the shark is. So that, that was, was all done with the intent of make it more of a mystery than just uh, let's do a thousand sharks like today they, they would do it because it could CGI. So the difficulty in the ocean is number one, you could go out in the morning and it's calm and and by the time you anchor the boat, anchor the uh, the camera barge and anchor the effects barge and all that, it's now probably ten thirty, close to eleven, and then the water starts getting choppy. And so what you had was smooth, and now it's choppy. The other problem was uh, when I scouted it in December, there was no boats out there. Now you have Martha's Vineyard, a very, very popular place for the summer. Everybody goes there. Presidents go there. Uh, the, the boats were from Hyannis were coming out, and there were just boats all over. And Stephen wanted to shoot this with no boats. He wanted them totally isolated. He wanted them so isolated that he had Quint break the radio so that Brody couldn't call and say, come and save us, you know, whatever. He wanted them totally, three guys, nobody around, can't call for help, and there's a shark out there. So we had the difficulty of the water changing 
constantly. We had the difficulty of other boats out there we didn't want to see. And that doesn't even begin to give our problems until we start using the shark. And then we get the shark, and it's working really good, and we get it in the water for a little while, and then the salt water loves to eat up the electronics. So as we're working it, and then slowly the salt water gets into this thing, and it stops working, and we have to send it back, and they've got to go through all the electronics and try to seal it again. So it's a never-ending, when you shoot on the water, it's a never-ending battle, you know. I mean, it's just from anchoring the boats. With, with the, uh, the boat, the orca, we had to anchor it with four anchors. So we couldn't have it be swinging around. We had to have it locked. So uh, there's nothing easy. <laughs> it's, it's uh, how can I say this? It's beyond belief how difficult it is. I mean, you, you, you just look at history, and when they have invasions from the sea, uh, the difficulties they have, you know, with the water. And so, anyway, uh, the, you know, the whole thing was difficult. There wasn't uh, an easy shoot, uh, <laughs> you know, in any case, uh, shark or, or no shark. Kind of a spin-off question of that. Um, you know, I've seen the, the photos uh, from your website and everything else where it's, it's like you, you're standing there with this giant shark head. You have it. It's open. I assume it's because you have to get in there for something. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. I'll tell you why I did that. that that's funny picture somebody took. You know, as big as the movie came, it, it, it was really small. Uh, the studio really didn't want to make this movie. Uh, they didn't really believe in a shark you know, movie could make any money. Um, so I would think they, they were saying uh, four and a half million tops. So we had a crew there, and uh, I was sitting with Stephen in the boat, and he was doing the shot, and the jaws on the upper came loose. Now, we didn't have effects crew right there, so I just w- went out in the skiff little boat and shoved the jaws back up. I was just trying to get it back up so we can get the shot. And that was basically it, shot by shot, whatever it needed to do to get the shot. And if we got a couple shots a day at the shark, boy, that was a big deal. You know, we we had the third act, we had the production office with copies of all all my storyboards, and then... We would go this way. We'd say, I'd go to Bob Maddie. I said, Bob, what's working today? And he says, I think maybe the left to right shark. I said, I'll go to Stephen. I said, yeah, the left to right is working. Then he'd go, he'd go over the storyboards and say, oh, okay, that's 185, A, B, and C, maybe 186 if we got time. And so then we would give everybody, prop man effects people, everybody, we're shooting these shots. It was past the script it was just shots you know and so then they would prepare the left to right shark and i told steven i said okay if it works you shoot it if it if it doesn't it's a test and we see how it moves so so that was it i mean it was just uh, day by day how many shots we could get yeah and <clears throat> and looking at that at that that image which is just an amazing shot um yeah. i i pictured myself on the crew 
and you and you telling me, okay, put your hand in there and, and get this or do that, and I and, and seeing how realistic that shark looked, I'd be like, no, you put your hand in there and you get the thing. I'm just curious while you're out there doing the job and everything else, and knowing that you're out on the real ocean and everything else, and how this shark looks and everything else, is there ever a time that your mind starts playing with you? Like, there's real animals in this ocean right now there's real things going on in order what was it just we got to get this job done and you're so focused that you didn't have time to think about stuff like that you 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 have to uh yeah you just do that it's interesting we didn't have any problems with real sharks now i did on jaws too when i I took the whole crew down to florida and and they said they, they have seen sharks and so everybody got freaked out so we have to have boats just looking patrolling to see, make sure there's no sharks coming up. But we never had that. Uh, it was very fortunate because uh, the East Coast does have a lot of shark attacks, uh, especially around Martha's Vineyard and Woods Hole and stuff. But we didn't have that. And, and we're talking about, let me just say this. Uh, I wasn't concerned about... You know, this is going to be a great movie. People are going to be afraid of the shark. I was more concerned because when the shark comes up and starts moving, it makes weird noises because of the various uh, rams and valves and stuff. And so it goes, and it was weird. And so after Stephen would yell, cut, the crew would laugh, you know, funny shark. So this was on my mind all the time. Is the shark really look mean or is it funny? And I, it wasn't until the screening, when we had the screening in L.A. for the first time for an audience, that we had John Williams' music, and they didn't laugh. They screamed. And uh, oh, yeah. so at that moment, that was the first moment that I thought, well, we did it. You, you understand? But that yeah. was after we finished the show, after it was cut. After Verna Fields did such a great job editing it, and then John Williams came in and added those two notes, which Stephen was wondering, what, two notes? And then, you know, and so, yeah, it took a while, guys. When you're working on something, you're just concerned about, did we get the shot? And if we did good, what are we doing tomorrow? Well, we're doing another shot, you know. So it's, it's just, it's months and months, or days and days, you know, of... You know, seven days, six days a week, basically, you know. So we had yeah. Sundays off. Yeah, I heard you mention uh, Werner Fields there. Um, and uh, one question I was going to ask you is, um, I've heard that you and Werner, at the tail end of filming, uh, you were actually um, directing the second unit. And I was just wondering yeah. if, if, uh, if you, the scenes that you did, if you could tell us what scenes you did. Sure. Um, uh, Werner was doing some... Uh, um, Towing the, the the barges. I mean, the, yeah, the not the barge. Uh, the the bar. You know, um, the barrels. The barrels. The yellow barrels. But Stephen came to me, and uh, he just wanted to get home and start cutting. And he was, you know, everybody was exhausted, but just sitting on the boat. So he said, "Joe, I have a shot. I'd like you to do." And because I did all the storyboards, I was pretty much, you know, familiar how to line everything up. So it, the shot with the little Kittner boy is on a raft, and the shark comes up and grabs him? Yeah. I, yeah, the, the, I the first time that. We, that's the first time we actually see the shark. 
Well, I think we see this. Well, maybe, but we didn't want to see it too much, and I try to do it in backlight, and we see the thing come up and take the boy. Probably you're, you're right. And uh, that was before, yeah, they go out on the boat. Yeah, uh, just was for a, a scene, split uh, second, just for a split second. <laughs> yeah, well, you see it more, but when Verna cut us, she cut us, so you didn't see too much. The oh, side angles, people published in books, and you see the thing come and grab grab the, the boat, the the, the, um, and the barge, a little barge, and, uh, you know, the war, uh, he's on a float. Yeah. You know? And uh, so that was not easy because, uh, first of all, I had kids in the foreground, and I, I had to shoot this. We shot this in a bay where there was uh, land on both sides, pretty narrow channel. And I had to sink the the barge shark, and it was foggy. I couldn't see, so I did that with a radar set. And then when the, when the fog left it, I lift the shark up, and it was perfect. I was so lucky at that. And uh, so that, that was... Uh, that was my introduction to to directing, and then of course on Jaws two, I directed eighty five days of uh, a lot of shark second unit. So, <laughs> wow! But uh, I, I realized how difficult it was there to sit and wait. You know, when you're on a boat waiting to shoot something, not only the tide changing, you know, anchors come loose, you got to re-anchor, and then you're waiting for the uh, the shark to come, and you set that up, and you know. Hours go by, and uh, there was a shot on Jaws 2 where the, or the shark eats a helicopter. It took me three days to get that one shot because different bad things happened, you know. Oh, wow. But it's, wow. Uh, it, it's, it's really, really difficult. Ocean, ocean, ocean shooting is, is just uh, terrible. But what, the, what's the choice? The choice is to do it on the – we did do a lake. We did when Dreyfus goes down. And and he's with uh, with uh, Brody, and they, he goes down, and he finds his tooth, and, and there's a hole in the in the hull, you know, yeah. and the head comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben yes. Gardner's head. <laughs> and, My and dad fast forwarded that part. That was a real scream. Well, let me tell you, jumping to the end, we shot, we got, we finished the movie, and. Uh, so they showed, a, I think, a screen in Texas, which I didn't see. That was the first one. And Stephen came to me, and he said, Joe, we have four screams. I think we can get five. What I need is the head coming out of the boat. And uh, I said, okay. So um, I said, I have a, a shop. I just would work. I said, and he says, I want a little bit, a bit of a hole where the shark is hitting the, you know, show me the way to go home, boom, boom, and I want to see the water come squirting through the hull. So I built two hulls, one with flexible wood, so we, uh, what we did was we shot that in my driveway with a hose, water hose and a camera, and, and so that was, the second one was a little hull I made uh, to look like Gardner's boat, uh, and a hole, and somebody stole the head out of the, the makeup department, we got an underwater camera and we shot it in Vernon Field's swimming pool. The editor <laughs> and uh, and we got somebody to go under there and hold the head, and and so when we had dailies, the studio and and Zanuck and Brown said we can't have Jaws. I mean, we're finished. We wrapped. We we you know the movie's done, and uh, no, we've got two more shots. So they didn't know. 
Stephen was doing this. <laughs> Stephen paid for getting the camera and all that stuff. And I did all the stuff for nothing. You know, I built the thing and had the wood and everything. So basically, as big as the movie is, it was also that small that we shot a thing in Vernon's Pool. We shot a thing in my front yard. Oh, my God. Uh, but it, it worked because that, that was incredible scream uh, when the head comes out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It still oh, makes sure. me jump to this day, and I've seen it probably <laughs> 15, 20 times. Yeah, and, and so, you know, this is a, a filmmaking with, without CGI. If we had CGI and limited, we wouldn't have to wait for boats to get away in the horizon. We would just get rid of them, you know. If there were certain things wrong, well, okay, I'll, I'll tell you another story, quick story, how we changed the script. Uh, Richard Zanuck was concerned about whether the shark was going to work or this or that, and so he wanted to do uh, to, to sort of uh, for, uh, for a safe bet uh, get live footage of white sharks down in Australia. So I, I talked to Ron and Valerie Taylor, and Valerie, she's a really nice lady. She said, "Joe, the biggest shark we can get is probably 16 feet." And your shark is 25. And we needed the Hooper character in the cage. You know, he goes down in the cage and the shark attacks mm -hmm. him in the cage. Mm. Well, so I said, okay. So I, I found a guy that said he was a stunt guy, about four feet six, small guy. And I built a cage relatively to the size, smaller size, so that a 16-foot shark would look like a 25-foot shark. You know, it's a size relationship thing. And um, we sent him and a crew. Well, they used the crew there, but we sent a production manager there to set things up. And uh, so they put this little guy uh, in the water. Oh, and let me just say this. So proportionately, I had to make smaller tanks so that they would look like regular tanks because the guy was smaller. So I made small tanks. And everything was in scale. So when the 16-foot shark comes and gets this small guy, and with he freaked out, and he sucked all the air immediately. And they brought him up, and he said, I'm not going back. I'm not doing it, you know. And he went and hid someplace. In the meantime, the shark was there, and there was another cage, sort of a breakaway cage, soft metal, aluminum probably, and the right size, and it was hanging off the boat. And the shark just got into that and started tearing the cage apart. Well, when we saw the footage, it was so incredible. You know, the producer and Steven, oh my God, we've got to use that. Okay, but where's the Dreyfus character? Hooper's supposed to get, he had this thing he was going to shoot, the hyperdermic, he was going to shoot the shark. And, uh, but he's supposed to die. He's supposed to get eaten. That's in the book. And so... Yeah. But there's no, there's no uh, Hooper. So we changed the whole script, and Hooper goes down and hides uh, for the rest of the duration of, of the, the picture until he comes back up with Shider and they swim away. Mm. So the script was changed because of that shot with the real shark. And that led that, into an amazing ending of the two of them swimming off. I mean, that's just an iconic moment to me of the two of them just swimming back to shore like they are. So, 
it was so much better than the book. I mean, nothing wrong with the book except the book. The, the, what happened was Carl Gottlieb got involved. It made it much linear. In other words, at one time, you know, the Brody's wife had an affair with the ecthiologist, mm. and there was uh, mafia involved, and there was all this stuff. And he just took that, and we just went, happy little village, you know, and, uh, oh, interesting thing, you know, by political things today, when when the, the mayor is saying, you got to go in the water, you got to go, and they're saying, you can't go in the water because uh, there's a shark out there, it's sort of relative today, we got to go out shopping. Oh, wait a minute, you know, there's a virus, you know. It's, <laughs> it's like business becomes more important than life. You know, we got to, we got to, you know, keep people coming back to the island and, but there's a shark. Anyway, interesting how the, the mayor was just, didn't want to believe that there was a shark out there to eat people. But, uh, in any case, uh, the, the book was much more complicated. The, the movie was much linear and more direct. And I think uh, it didn't take up a lot of time going off in different directions, you know. Yeah. Um, and also, um, as far as I understand, you, you were responsible for one of the lesser known characters in the film, um, the orca. Um, you were responsible for finding the boat and modifying it to the specifications and stuff. Can you tell us about yeah. that? Uh, yeah. What happened with that? Uh, we wanted to get a real boat, you know, to start with. And here again, I didn't have a lot of money. I, I took a painter and a carpenter, and that was it, and a set decorator uh, to, for location. And uh, so we were going to get with a boat and then modify it. And uh, uh, Tom Joyner was a first assistant, and Bob Madden and I, we went up the coast, and we found this boat uh, that, it, you know, the, the, the size was right and what have you. Uh, and we brought it back to the vineyard, and it, but it just didn't have any real character to it. And Stephen wanted bigger windows, so I, I totally redid the whole thing. I put uh, a pulpit out there so Shaw could get out there with his, you know, with his gun, and uh, and uh, we had uh, the crow's nest, which ended up pretty good at the end when it goes into the water, and and Brody is shooting the shark. So we added a lot of character to it. Painted it dark because that's the Shaw character, and I painted little strips of uh, sort of maroon because I didn't want to use any red. I, I would try to avoid any red in the movie. So when we saw blood, said, oh my God, there's red, you know. Uh, so we made that boat, and then we needed a boat that would sink and come back. And Bob Matty was very clever. We made a second boat with no bottom, and he had the barrels. So when you tip the barrels, they collect water. And it starts to sink, so he could sink the left side and bring it back, or sink the the bow and bring it back, and so that that was uh, the two boats that we had, and uh, and you know they had Quid's character, and and I, I tried to do the same thing with his house, is is give it a lot of character with a, a lot of uh, inside a, a lot of uh, shark teeth and stuff like that. I was actually going to ask you that next because. Um did Quint's shack wasn't even there, was it, to start with? It was like an empty lot that you actually built the entire building on. Oh, yeah. Here's what happened. When I scouted in December, I went to Vineyard Haven, and that was perfect because they had these picket fences, and it was so pristine, and it was just a great place to really upset. Then I went to Menemsha, 
which is across the island, and it was a total fishing village. And that's where a lot of the fishermen had their little shacks, whether they they didn't live there, but they kept their equipment there in these shacks. And I climbed up and looked down in a little peninsula there, and there was this empty lot. And I thought, wow, that's a perfect place for Quince because I could make it bigger, higher than the other places because that's him. He's a dominant figure. Well, I remember thinking this. When I climbed up there and I looked at this whole video, I said, David Lean, who was a big director at the time, you know, uh, he would have built the whole village because he, he built everything. And, <laughs> and I, I didn't have to build the village. It was there. I just had to build the house. Well, I had a lot of trouble because as soon as I, I made a model to show the various selectmen, and there was all these various small government people that had a lot of influence in the and the uh, fishermen said, no, you know, you're, it's too big. We have a restriction of so many feet. Yours is 35 feet. They can only go 20 feet. And uh, I said, yeah, but, you know, this is not really a, a house. It's a movie set, and we'll get rid of it after, you know, and I had to go to Boston and show them the model to get certain permits. And it went back and forth like this. And finally, we had to put up a $500,000 bond that we would destroy the house and put all the garbage back on the lot, which is still there today. So it was, it was a, I remember this old fisherman, well, not an old guy, but a very pugnacious guy, Lynn Murphy. He says, oh, you guys, are, you know, you're here making this movie and you're wrecking everything. And I said, oh, I understand you're really a good boat guy. He said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, you, he said, yeah I, know, I know boats. And I said, well, we need somebody that really knows boats that could tow our shark. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. we'll hire you. So he, suddenly he's got a job and he <laughs> does all the towing and he knows the waters better than anybody. And uh, just a great, and he had an assistant, this one uh, young girl, she went to Vassar, very well educated, and she was his mate, and he would yell, get this, tie that, blah, blah. And you know what happened was he had such a personality that Quint and he used to go get drunk together, and that's how Quint got the character. <laughs> oh, that's I mean, that's awesome. how he got the character. <laughs> he, he started acting like Lynn Murphy, you know, like you shout and you do this and blah, 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 you know. So, that was interesting that they became buddies, uh, and uh, it it ended up because if you you talk to you know uh, Shaw, you know he's an English guy, very well educated, you know English accent, you know, and he's on other movies, you know we know what he we can do. So anyway, the little bits and stories. How things happen. I was going to say that that sounded like the real Quint, and then you, and then you made that huge reveal that part of that character was kind of based on him. That's 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 pretty awesome. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked, it worked quite quite well. I still talk to to uh, to Susan Murphy. Uh, she's she lives alone. Then passed away, and but. Uh, we, whenever I get to the island, I was going to go back to the island in July. I had reservations there because we were going to do a, a big a book signing um, for for the book, you know, uh, uh, designing Jaws. And uh, well, with Pendek, you know, everything's canceled. So yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you when you when did you first meet 
Steven Spielberg, and what was that first meeting like? Oh, well, I, I was, as I say, a staff art director, and I was doing a series called uh, Night Gallery, Rod Serling. And uh, he had done uh, a segment of it uh, for, um, it was a spinoff, but I didn't do that. I, then he did an a, a episode of Night Gallery, and I, I met him on that. And then he did two episodes of a series called The Psychiatrist, and we got to know each other on that. It was a series that lasted, I think there were six episodes, and they canceled it. So, uh, you know, we got to know each other. That was it. And basically, then he got the first theatrical film. This was after Duel. I didn't do that, but this was that was a television. The first theatrical film was Sugarland Express, and so we spent a lot of time together uh, driving around Texas looking for locations, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We ended up doing most of it in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and uh, Goldie Hawn was there, real cute, real character. <laughs> and um, so that's how we got to know each other, and uh, I think... Basically, Stephen was uh, a director that started, you know, making films when he was like 14. And so everything he made, pretty much he did everything, you know. And, and now he's got a he's got a group, you know, he's got a, uh, a people that work with him. And so that was sort of a thing that he had to learn, you know, uh, that I have a a cameraman, I have an art director, I have a production manager, and, and we would go scouting, and Bill Gilmore was a production manager, and we'd say, oh, I'd say, see, well, look at this, you know, you can put the cars up here and come down here, and he'd say, oh, yeah, that works good, Joe, we could put the line, and then Goldie drives down here, and then Bill would say, you know, and it's only 25 minutes from our home base, and this is a big thing, because when you're shooting locations, you don't want to shoot too far away from where you're based because you're wasting time in travel, you know, because uh, you could lose two, three hours just getting to the location. So the production manager would say, you know, this is close enough. We could do that. And I would say this works for this. And then, So Stephen was, uh, I think, at that time, realizing he had a group of people that were helping him. And he had the choice to say, no, I like it or I don't like it, uh, but the fact that we would present something, and that's how we became close, because I would present something to him. He'd say, oh, that's good, or, well, you know, Joe, look for something else, maybe. And uh, so uh, that was Sugarland, and then, of course, uh, then came, came Jaws, you know. But uh, uh, and, and when I was doing the early sketches, I would go over and talk to Stephen, and he, he wasn't assigned to the movie yet. He wasn't to... Uh, pirate movie, but I don't know. Anyway, he was under contract. So, and then when he came on the team, then we were, you know, it's a, a team effort. Making movies is a team effort. It's not just the, the director, mm. you know. Yeah. yeah, and Jaws is a perfect example of that because it is a perfect storm of um, writing, acting, directing, production design, you know, score, music, sound effects, everything just came together in this perfect storm of an incredibly arduous filming schedule, as we know that it ran on so long. And it just it just came out for most people that watch it, including myself and everybody here, a perfect movie. So thank you. 
Yeah, well, See, good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joe, you um, you recently received a uh, lifetime achievement award from um, ADG uh, this last February. Yeah. So, congratulations to that. I'm I'm really curious. You created some of my favorite movies growing up and and whatnot. What what got you into film? And then, uh, more importantly, probably what what helped you stay in and be such a an influence on um, creative storytelling for generations. Well, let me say, when I was a teenager, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I was always uh, interested in music. I played the piano, and I could always draw. I remember drawing when I was four, five years old. I did all the dwarfs, you know, and took them to class when I first got into school. Uh, but I remember when I was uh, like 14, and went down to the theater Saturday, early Saturday night with a girl that lived up the street and we saw American in Paris and uh, we just I just loved it, Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron and we just came back dancing and the music was so good and then I found out they never shot it in Paris <laughs> Cedric Gibbons who are, these, who are these guys? They made their art directors they make Paris? Yeah, the whole thing was shot in the MGM back lot or on a sound stage. And so that really created my interest in, uh, of course, I was interested in art and music. And I was, so uh, I, I sort of, uh, when I went to college, uh, my first year I majored in architecture because I knew you had to do architecture to, to build sets. And I minored in drama. So, you know, and so it sort of grew that way. And then I came down to L.A., I was really young when I got out of high school at 17. So my second year, I went to art school, uh, Chenard's Art Institute, which is now CalArts, and they had a class in production designing or motion picture designing, and uh, I started that way. And then uh, just unbelievably fortunate, I, I needed a summer job, and I didn't want to go back home. Uh, so I talked to a friend of mine, and he says, there's uh, his wife's father worked as, at Disney. Maybe he could give you a job there. And, and I thought, oh, maybe I could do sweep-up sets or something like that. And uh, called the guy. And he happened to be the guy that did the hiring for the artists. And, how, and he said, well, bring in your portfolio. And I said, uh, I don't think I'm ready. And he said, well, bring it in. Let's look at it. So I brought the portfolio because I was only, I just turned 19. And he looked at it, and he said, well, you're too late for the training program. It was about 40, 50 days of training where they teach you how to flip pages and draw and do Mickey Mouse and all that. He said, but I could put you in special effects right now where you do water and fire and all that. And so, boy, the next day I'm in this office with this uh, lady, um, and um, she's she's – I said, what do I do? She said, you flip the pages, there's this light board, and then you draw in between. So and generally, uh, without going into long detail, you're a trainee for a while, then you become an in-betweener for maybe a year, and then another year or so, a breakdown artist, and then maybe after three, four years, you could become an uh, assistant animator, and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, this girl, a woman I was working for, after a few weeks, and she was working for Dwight Carlyle, who was working for Josh Metter, who is the king effects animator. He did the, the fire in Bambi, the night on Bald Mountain, uh, and he was quite a, a compass artist, too. But he, he was uh, 
he was a king. And there was this movie, it was an MGM movie, and they were uh, sending out the, the effects of the id was being done at Disney. So um, it was a farmed out deal. So anyway, here I'm there maybe a month, a month and a half, and she has to leave, and, and she's working for Dwight, who's working for And so now I'm working directly for Dwight Carlisle, uh, you know, helping him as a breakdown artist. And after about a month, he has to go to the hospital for something. And now here I am, after three months, assisting Josh Vedder, and I'm drawing the id for uh, Forbidden Planet. And wow. uh, it was yeah. it was crazy, uh, and and that was really tricky because we were doing technoscope paper, so it was really wide before, you know, and and you had to render everything because we didn't want to ink and paint it. So every every drawing had to be sort of shaded and rendered, and we had two layers: the hot part and the anyway. That's how it started. Uh, so I was uh, doing the id, and then I was an assistant animator, and I was doing uh, a Sleeping Beauty. And I'll just have to tell this story because it's sort of funny because I'm working on Sleeping Beauty, and there's the little fairies, and one of the fairies, the little fairies, is holding a cookie. And some guy reaches over me and corrects the cookie. He said, no, the cookie should look like this. And it's Walt Disney. And everybody calls him Walt. You know, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, Walt, however you say. I think the cookie looked like, you know, Mickey Mouse ears or something. But uh, basically, that was I was there for a, a couple of years, but I really wanted to get into live action. And uh, so basically, I, I did that, and I worked at a little theater, Hollywood Playhouse, and did sets, did illustrations, and and working drawings, and I built up a portfolio, and I walked around, and when the union let me, I got my first job, and then I became, and then you just bounced around uh, as a junior set designer to become a senior, but you go from, when they have a big picture, uh, like I was working on Mutiny and the Bounty and Navy Jam, and I was doing little details and boats, uh, and then uh, when that's finished, then you're let go because the regulars stay. So you get bounced around until you find a home, and then I found a home at Universal, and I worked as a senior set designer on It's a Mad, Mad World for about six months, and uh, and then I, I was lucky enough to become an assistant art director and work with really a good art director, and we ended up doing uh, a thing called Change a Habit, which was... Uh, Elvis Presley's last movie and then the big one was Torn Curtain with Alfred Hitchcock and I worked with Hitchcock for uh, you know six, seven months on that so wow. it, it, then it grew and you know from there it just then I became an art director and I got Night Gallery and so on and that's pretty much the history uh, you just named off some really big names in Hollywood. That is, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and you just, Disney. you just, you just, yes, you, Walt Disney, Elvis. Elvis. I mean, you, you just rattled them off, and I'm, my mind is blown. <laughs> so, yeah, well, Elvis wasn't the nicest guy, you know, but because uh, he had his entourage, mm. you know, and uh, so he was pretty well isolated, uh, but. Uh, you know, it's um, other people I've worked with. Paul Newman was the sweetest guy. Julie Andrews was just great, you know, uh, and um, Rolling Stones. Uh, who's the Mick Jagger? Uh, Rolling Stones. I did a movie with Mick Jagger. 
called uh, uh, Torn Curtain. No, I mean, it's called, uh, oh, what the hell, I can't remember right now. I'll think about it. Uh, anyway, he was just, he was totally on Mick Jagger. You know, he he was not the crazy guy. He was just such a gentleman and uh, just was really good. Um, anyway, yeah, these are people, and some of them were nice and some of them weren't nice, but I, I was very fortunate uh, yeah. to, wow. to, to, to work with them. Um, uh, let's see. So, yeah, any other questions? Oh, I, you know, there's a couple people I worked with that are pretty good. Uh, John Carpenter on Escape from New York. Oh, wow. He was oh, a yeah. really good. Yeah, he was sort of a Hitchcock guy in that, we did with Hitchcock. You we built half sets because he knew what he wanted to shoot. So there was no reason in building a huge set that he wasn't going to shoot. He would, you know, he said, "No, I don't have to. I don't need the reverse because I'm going to do this." And uh, John Carpenter w- was pretty much the same way. I could just give him, you know, a, a piece of a set, and and that's what he would shoot. You know, some directors you build the whole thing. And then you don't see it, you know, because they don't think about what they're going to do until they get on the set. Mm. Where, whereas, you know, if you do storyboards and you plan it and discuss it, he, he or, you know, a good director will know what he wants before. So, anyway. so with with all of your experience, every, you know, I'm sure I know this from any type of career. Uh, you you learn from the uh, experiences he had. You know, uh, you work on a project, you learn lessons from them, and that you take on with you to to other ones. To circle back to Jaws, was there anything, one or two things that you learned from doing Jaws that helped you with future projects that you worked on? Determination. <laughs> uh, the doing. Okay, let me just give you a real example. Okay. So Jaws was, can you get the shark bait? Well, I didn't have any clue if I could get the shark bait, but I said I could. And then finally I did, and I was fortunate to find a crew uh, to do it. And then we got it done. Now, relative to that, uh, I was uh, doing going to do a picture with Stephen called Escape, uh, 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 Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Stephen was working on the script, and there was nobody attached to the movie yet. And the head of production, John Veach, said, this is a small sci-fi movie, maybe $3 million at most. Everything's going to be shot on the back lot and uh, in a sound stage, but you have to go find some strange mountain. So I took off, and I drove 3,000 miles and all these various mountains, Ship Rock, Chimney Rock, and then I found Devil's Tower, and, uh, you know, Stephen and I loved it. it was, okay, so now uh, we're starting to make this movie, and they're thinking of it as small, cheap uh, TV. I mean, not TV, but sci-fi. And as Jaws grew, so did this two, $3 million sci-fi movie grow, <laughs> grew, and Stephen's ideas got bigger, and I built a set that was much bigger than they had at the studio. Uh, I built a set that was so big, uh, it was a football field wide and a football field and a half long. We had a special ham, uh, hangar down in Mobile, Alabama. And to this day, when, when I got that award, uh, the Art Directors Guild, Stephen did a video uh, 
was very, very complimentary to me, and, and he was saying how, to this day, he's never worked on a set as big as that, you know, because today they would CGI stuff. So the point, my point is, what did I learn from Jaws is the, the power of be, having a successful movie. You could make the other one, the next one's bigger because you have credentials, do you, you understand? Yeah, yeah. Given yeah. Right. The success gives you credentials to go bigger. And then the studio, Columbia, needed a big movie. They have this young director that did Jaws and the designer did Jaws. And so when I said I built a set that would fit in the studio, you know, soundstage, but I thought it was too small. They said, how big do you want to build it? And I said, four times that. And they said, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, because they thought, well, they'll make money, you know, and uh, it's all about money with them. But as you have more confidence with your success, uh, then it leads you to do other things, you know. Well, it worked because I Close Encounters of the Third Kind is one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time. It's fantastic. And uh, you're a big fan of uh, Starman as well. Was that right, Brian? I love Starman. So, so do I. Joe worked on that as well. Oh my god! I uh, <laughs> Starman is like such a huge part of my childhood. I loved that movie when I was a kid. That and... was that was quite a good movie. Uh, you oh. know, with that, John wanted me to design it, but I had already directed Jaws 3D, and I was looking for other directing jobs. And I said, I'll come on and do some initial concepts. I'll do a concept, be a concept designer. I didn't want to be uh, on board as a production designer, so I, I got the who was the art director on Close Encounters, Danny Lamino, and then I'll shoot all the second unit. So basically I did the concept of the, the little spaceship, and then I went uh, with uh, a crew, and we did uh, them driving across the country and the, the Grand, you know, the Monument Valley and all that. So, yeah, that was fun, and finding uh, uh, the, the place where the, the mothership, the land, the thing lands and I had a concept for that which uh, actually uh, I was very unhappy with the way they did it was Lucas's company ILM uh, did the effect I I wanted the spaceship to be what I did was this I took a a cue ball and I had it chromed and I wanted the spaceship to be this sphere that it would it would just reflect the bottom and the, the sky on the top and the earth, so that you you didn't really see a spaceship. You just saw a reflection of something coming down, and they sort of uh, didn't do it the way I was hoping. But uh, yeah, that was a, that was sort of a fun project. You know, Carpenter was good to work with. So. Now, uh, it was mentioned earlier, uh, or at least a couple times, with the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award that you just recently received. Does receiving something like that allow you, uh, or are you one, to reflect back on this amazing career that you've had in our eyes? Do you ever allow yourself to just step back and realize all the things that you've been involved in uh, and and kind of have any moment of awe when, when, when you look back like that? Uh, not really. You know, it was interesting. The award thing was great. Uh, Greg Nicotero uh, introduced me because Greg wrote the forward to the book, and we've been friends for years. You know, he does uh, Walking Dead, and uh, and so 
he introduced me, and the head of the art department, I mean, the art director's guild, said, well, we'll try to get Spielberg. And I said, I don't want to ask Stephen. So uh, anyway, they did, and Stephen said uh, he, he was tied up doing the West Side Story. But so Greg introduced me, and they started showing clips, and then suddenly there's this video of Steven Spielberg mm. saying, "Hi, Joe, remember me? You know, we had such a great time working on this, blah blah blah." And that went on for minutes and minutes, and so that, that really surprised me. But let me just say this, guys, without being, I the ego of all this stuff, you know. Let, I mean, it was great. I was so fortunate, but. I, I got to tell you, in, in the movie business, there's also a really a lot of down, downside things. Uh, for an example, when I did Jaws 3, and, and they were going to, the studio didn't want to do Jaws 3 because uh, they, they weren't doing sequels. They did Jaws 2, and that was enough. And then Alan Landsberg bought it, and it was a low-budget uh, television producer. And anyway, I came up with the idea because I saw a 3D underwater thing to do a 3D. I got the directing job and he was very difficult, very low budget. He was on me all the time. The uh, camera stuff was old. We had to make new camera stuff. 3D was very difficult. Anyway, bottom line, the movie came out. They they didn't give me final cut. So I had a two-hour movie. They cut it down by 20, 25 minutes. So they took a lot of personal things out of it, which I was criticized for by critics. So, but I had no control. Wow. Uh, and in any case, uh, so then I pursued a lot of uh, different directing. I worked on a thing called uh, Adventure One. It's about a spaceship. And uh, I worked on it for six, seven months as a director. And then money fell out. That was canceled. I worked on another thing because uh, I used to race cars, Formula cars. And I, I was going to do a Formula One racing, scouted all over Europe, got back, company got sold off. So that didn't happen. And I could... So sometimes when I think about the success, I think about all the things that didn't happen. And and that happens in this business, you know. Yeah. People think, you know, oh, you did all this great stuff. Yeah, and I'm really happy, and, and I'm very proud that they're reflecting on it now. But I went through some some pretty difficult times, you know, when I was trying to make the transition from a designer to a director a lot of directors didn't want to hire a designer that had already been a director. That, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, Jaws 3D made a lot of money, and it had uh, a lot of, you know, directors. Uh, yeah, I had a podcast with Kevin Smith, big Jaws 3 fan, and a number of directors. So that, they were at that age, you know. We were 13, 14 when it came out. Yeah. So uh, what I'm saying, guys, is, yes, I was fortunate to have worked with Steven, with Hitchcock, with Carpenter, but there were the disappointments of of uh, the projects that I, you know, wanted to direct that that didn't happen. So, you know, there's ups and downs. It's it's a difficult business. Yeah. Well, they recently had what was it? Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League is coming out, so I think we need to start the hashtag release the Alves cut. Yeah, 100%. Of, of Jaws 3D? Yes, of jo I want the Alves Jaws 3D cut, and we need to start the hashtag, yeah, it, get it trending. It, it, it's it's crazy. Well, I mean, so, imagine but, that you've well, got the technology to do it as well. You can really do Well, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's been a while. But uh, you know what, guys? I sort of put things out of my mind. 
I'm I'm having a really great time. I, I do a lot of sculptures. You know, I I did sculpt that fish, but I I do full size sculpture. I've done a lot of mermaids, and people say, oh, the softer side of jaws in in big wood sculptures <laughs> and stuff. So my time is consumed into designing and going into the shop and and sculpting, and so that sort of. Uh, uh, that uh, I find that very rewarding, you know, that I could still uh, be physically, you know, I, I hike a couple miles every other day, you know, and I, I mean, I just turned 84. You're supposed to be old and not do anything, but, I, you know, I still, <laughs> I have a young daughter. She's 27. We went hiking yesterday, and I go up up the hills uh, where there's nobody, uh, dirt road, and uh, so I keep pretty active, and, of course, now, this last couple of weeks of the podcast, uh, you know, uh, Jenny uh, has called me about doing I did a wonderful podcast with uh, uh, Kevin Smith uh, last Monday, a week ago, and uh, he is great. You know, he's done a lot of a lot of movies and stuff, and he was a big Jaws fan. And so, that you know, these things are fun. And, uh, you know, if we didn't have uh, the book coming out was great. I did... Uh, signings with uh, Dennis Prince and Greg Nicotero. Uh, we did one in Burbank. Uh, we did one in uh, Sacramento, and we were going to do one in Martha's Vineyard, but that got canceled. So the, the book brings out uh, a lot of interest, and Dennis also has uh, written a lot of technical books when he worked with Hewlett Packard. He worked a year on uh, doing uh, a biography of me, which we haven't been able to sell yet, but it goes through. So What's happened, what was fortunate, because I've lived in the same house for 50 years, is I never threw anything away. I kept every drawing, everything from, you know, different movies and all the stuff from Jaws. So when he's writing this stuff, he's got all this reference stuff, you know. So because most people just throw stuff away, you know, when they move. But I didn't move. So I just anyway, that's about it. I What's just, what, how long have we been talking? Been been, talking a little bit, a little bit over an hour. I just want to say that, oh, okay. um, I just want to say that okay. I want to apologize that, um, you, you talked to Kevin Smith and now you're stuck talking to us three schlubs. So. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it, it's, it's cool. You know, Kevin's a really cool guy and, uh, you know, he was explaining that his father took him to see Jaws when he was five. His father actually took him at, at five at a, at a drive-in theater. Wow. And then, of course, uh, he saw two, and then when he was old enough to go by himself to go see three, and he was freaked out. And so uh, he did his first movie when he was 24. Uh, it was 1994. Uh, and uh, so it's quite an experience. So it was a good conversation. And uh, anyway, I, you know. That's fantastic. I'm here to talk. I, I really want to thank you for being on. I didn't know. Did you guys have one more last question? Anybody that they wanted to ask? One more last question. The only thing I, the only thing I wanted to say, uh, and I know it's been said throughout the the episode, is I just want to thank you for everything you did throughout your entire career, especially with Jaws, since that's the the focus that we're on today. Um, yeah. You know, I I've watched that movie. Uh, it's one of those movies that I can't tell you how many times I've watched it because I've seen it that many times. Um, and I can guarantee you I've been, I've seen that movie more times than I've been in the ocean, uh, because of that movie. So, uh, I, and I'm grateful for that. (laughs) I want to add to this, Roy Arbogast, who did the, uh, the physical thing, the skin and everything. I talked to him this morning. Uh, 
And he said, we were talking about telling what I was doing. He said, you know, Jaws was on uh, HBO. He says, I haven't seen it for years. And so it, it was on HBO. He said, I think I'll, I'll watch it. And uh, with no interruptions, no you know commercials and stuff. And he says, you know, it was the first time I watched it without thinking about making the shark or doing all this stuff. Just watching it as, you know, a person, uh, not involved. And he said, my God, that was really a good movie. And that was my impression when I saw it a couple of years ago, is when you work on a movie, you're so concerned about, oh, God, is this right? Do we screw up here? Did they have something in their left hand and they know it's in their right hand? Or, you know, all these things that could go wrong. But if you give it time and then you just go back and start being just part of the audience and you realize, you know, that was, I think, that was one of Stephen's best movies. Mm, you know, yeah. it was just, yeah, for sure. it worked. Yeah. So, so, thank, so thank you very much for everything you did to make that movie possible. All right, possible. guys. Well, it was, uh, it was great talking to you, uh, and Nick and Dan and Scott and uh, Ryan and uh, Bruce. Brian. Yeah. I'll take Bruce. I, I know, not Bruce, Brian. No, that yeah. was a shark. Are, are, who are you gonna, uh, so who are you going to talk to next, Joe Rogan? I don't know if I, I'm going to talk for a while. I did talk to Jeff Goldsmith. Do you know him? I've heard the Hello? name before. Yes. I can't say I know Jeff Goldsmith. No, I don't know. Anyway, so, uh, uh, yeah, Jenny Sarita, she's the one that sets these things up. But it was it is good. I need a... I need a little rest. Well, thank it, you so it, it, much. I mean, I do tell the same story, but it's pretty much what it is, you know. It's you yeah. know, there's no stories. It's just uh, what happened. Well, thank uh, you. I mean, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Joe. So thank you very much for taking the time. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye bye. There's already like seven million podcasts talking about pop culture and all that. It's a trap. Good and toss it, good and take it. Do we love it? Hey, let's race it, clean it, race it. Let's embrace the Tupperware party. Subculture spill over like a vulture. Carry over, counterculture, push over. Pop culture. Leftover. Uncool kids. What's his day's already been said. Leftover. Pretty sure the only talent is the band that's singing this. Pop culture leftovers. Original and good have already been done before, so we should separate the wheat from the shaft and the shaft the crap, even though we're the shit. We're the leftovers picking up the scraps, dropped by the cool kids. It, it, it's a trap. Good and toss it, good and taste it. Do we love it? Hey, let's fix it, clean it, race it, let's embrace the Tupperware party. Subculture spill over like a vulture, carry over, counterculture push over, pop culture. Leftovers. And with the uncool kids, what's to say's already been said. Leftovers. Pretty sure that the only talent is the band that's singing this. Pop culture leftovers. Do we love it? Hey, let's face it. Can't erase it. Let's embrace the Tupperware party. Subculture spill over like a vulture. Carry over. Counterculture pushovers. Pop culture. Leftover. And uncool kids. What's to say? It's already been said. Leftover. Pretty sure the only talent 
the band that's singing this pop culture leftovers.